Hello, I'm Brian, one of the pastors. If you haven't met yet, welcome everybody online. We're going to take a hard left and uh, dive into our message here. Um, we've been working our way through uh, the book of Colossians over this uh, summertime. And in this letter, the Apostle Paul paints this amazing picture of how absolutely unique that Jesus is and how connecting with him can bring us uh, to life. And so uh, to start, I want to look at a section from Colossians 1 and actually kind of get us going again. Let's all read this aloud together. This is from Colossians 1, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verses 15 uh, to 18. Uh, let's read this together. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, amen, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. I didn't think about what we were doing today, when I picked that service, or that, that verse. That is amazing, isn't it? This is God's promise to us as a church, amen, that Jesus might have supremacy in everything. I love how uh, in the New Living Translation, they summarize this final verse, that Jesus is first in everything. Here's the big idea I wanna look at today. Our lives work best. We truly come to life when Jesus is at the center of it. Uh, and along those lines this morning, we're going to touch on the immense value of having Jesus at the center, particularly of key relationships in our lives. So it's one of our two goals for today and where we're going to finish up. But I also want to tackle another item. Uh, I want to give some insights on how we approach difficult passages in the Bible because our main text today in Colossians 3 is certainly uh, one of those. Uh, in our culture today, many people get confused about what to do with the Bible. And the Bible's written over 40, by over 40 authors over numerous centuries uh, with uh, you know, the most recent portions of that being added almost 2,000 years ago. And so with that distance of time, we might wonder, like, what the heck do we do? You know, how are we supposed to read and apply the Bible uh, to our lives today? Lots of different people have tried a lot of different ways to handle this through the years. Uh, this guy took this approach. This is A.J. Jacobs. Uh, a handful of years ago, he set out to do all the commands in the Bible for t 12 months. And so he literally walked around New York City, that's where he's from, uh, for a whole year in a white robe with a sheep and a staff and all of that, trying to live out all of these different rules. And then, of course, then he wrote a book about it. You had to make a profit. Uh, you think, is this what we're supposed to do uh, with the Bible? I certainly hope not. Uh, in contrast, here's a one-sentence summary from Dr. Scott McKnight. Uh, it comes from his book, The Blue Parakeet, uh, and McKnight writes this. He says, we are not called to live first century lives in the 21st century, but 21st century lives as we walk in the light of the revelation that God gave us in the first century. You see how that works? We're not meant to live first century lives now, but we're meant to look back and see like, what did that say? How was that all working all those years ago? And then try and build this bridge to what does that mean for us today? I think that's a lot 
more helpful. Here's another angle to consider, uh, summarized by an illustration from Tim Mackey. We've uh, uh, talked about him before. He's one of the founders of the Bible Project. Uh, He says this, if you were traveling to a foreign country that you've never been to before, you would expect to experience some differences and you would prepare in certain ways. Uh, I remember I went to Mexico um, on a missions trip for the first time uh, 15 years ago, and it's my first big cross-cultural experience. I remember doing this, uh, you know, learning some phrases, trying to do that. My wife speaks Spanish, and, and you know, I had been to Mexico a number of times. So I was asking her a ton of questions, even with that preparation, that experience of going uh, to this brand new place where I didn't understand things was immensely disorienting. Uh, Mackey goes on, he says, the Bible is like another country. It's another country, and I think you should treat it like one that doesn't diminish its capacity to speak to me. I think it actually enhances its ability to say things that I never thought to think before. So you might think about the Bible being, reading the Bible like a cross-cultural experience, because that really is. We often have to step into a world that's unfamiliar to us to understand what the authors are trying to communicate. And again, that doesn't make us less faithful to the scriptures. It actually makes us more faithful to it. Okay, with all that in mind, let's take a first read at our passage uh, for today. Okay, so we're going to be in Colossians 3. Uh, We're going to start at uh, verse 18. Read through um, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes. Wives, submit to your husbands, yourselves to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ that you are serving Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for the wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Gulp, right? Okay, let's name the elephant in the room. Wow, that can be some hard stuff to take in, you know, with our 21st century ears. You know, a few things in that passage probably sound alarming, maybe a bit offensive to a number of us, okay? What's Paul doing talking about slaves and masters? You know, what's he getting at when he's telling wives to submit to their husbands, for kids to obey their parents in everything? This is certainly, this is a challenging passage to take in. And I want to say this as well. It's like, um, tragically, this text has been leveraged through the years in some really, really damaging ways. Uh, Leveraged to reinforce domineering, and even abusive systems of power. And so, before I get into more of this, like if you've experienced some of that, if you've been hurt in those ways, or if you have struggled with how passages like this have been maybe even weaponized against other people, man, I just wanna say, I am so sorry. Like that, I don't think that's God's heart, and I don't think there's any excuse for that. And so one of my real hopes for today is maybe to help us learn some further ways to approach reading scriptures that don't repeat um, some of those damaging patterns. 
because along those lines, um, let me offer a few interpretive keys. Maybe what we're going to call helpful principles, particularly for reading challenging passages in the Bible. And as we talk about these, I'm also going to unpack a little bit of about our specific scripture, uh, this passage in Colossians. So first principle is this. Um, uh, take on a posture of humility and learning when you're approaching difficult parts of the Bible. It's helpful to approach the Bible with a humble spirit rather than with skepticism or disdain. Uh, if you're looking at the Bible and just assuming like this has nothing to say to me, you will probably prove yourself right. <laughs> but if you can have a humility and a curiosity about you, you're going to be surprised, I think, to be able to see what you might find. I encourage you to heed Tim Mackey's advice, realizing that you are traveling, as it were, to like a completely different country, this unfamiliar territory, and so you may not understand everything right away. But I want to encourage you, decide ahead of time to respond with a willing heart to whatever you do understand, and then hold with an open hand any of the things that may not, not, may not make sense right on the front end. Okay, so that's the first thing. Secondly, seek to understand what the passage spoke to the original readers. It's important to remember that each part of the Bible was written to specific people in specific times and circumstances. And so, as Scott McKnight pointed to, as we mentioned earlier, the meaning and the application that we draw today comes best as we understand the context of what it spoke to the original people that heard and um, read those first words. And so Colossians, it's a letter from the Apostle Paul. It's written to this group of non-Jewish Christians in the middle of the first century. In this particular section, uh, in um, Colossians 3, it's often labeled household codes, household codes for living. Uh, it was common in that day for different teachers or philosophers um, in correspondence to be able to give wisdom or advice or different things about here's how to go about life in the first century. And so uh, this is Paul uh, doing the same thing. Now again, to our 21st century ears, um, Paul's words may sound initially repressive or alarming, uh, but as you dig below the surface, much of what Paul wrote to the Colossians was actually pretty progressive uh, in that day, particularly concerning the thoughts and systems of their society. We'll touch on that more uh, in a few moments. Okay, third principle. Um, look back to God's original design. Look ahead to God's ultimate plan. When we, we try to understand the Bible, it's often to, helpful to think about where things started and where they're going to end up in the, in the wide arc of the narrative of Scripture. And that's particularly true for today's passage. Uh, for example, in Genesis 1, we read, right at the beginning of the Bible, we read, before humanities fall into sin, that males and females, men and women, were both made in the image of God. Equal partners, no domination, no grasping for power. That's where things began. Similarly, at the end of the scriptures, we see this picture of every tribe and tongue and nation together in God's presence. There's no hierarchy of races or cultures, ages or genders, nor are there any unjust systems of power. It's all made right as we're underneath the rule and the reign of God's kingdom. Okay, so that's like a picture of God's ideal. And if we have that in our minds, that can help us to reckon with the broken realities of this in-between in -between time period, right? Because we live between those two times, right? We're not at the beginning. We're not at the end. There's a whole lot of brokenness in the middle. 
But if we have those two things in mind, that can help us to sort through this messy middle. Things aren't now, they aren't right now yet what they could be or what they should be. But as followers of Jesus, we intentionally lean towards God's design and creation, and we even more, even further, we lean towards what he is doing in the new creation, how he is making everything perfect again in and through Jesus Christ. Okay, and we'll talk more about this in a moment again, but again, this may be hard to see initially, but there were even some specific ways that Paul was doing this in the words that we read here in Colossians 3. Okay, so final um, little principle here. With all of that in mind, here's what we do. We just do our best. We do our best to apply the text uh, today. And this is amazingly hard work, okay? There's no way around this. It's gonna take some study often, utilizing principles uh, that have, like ones that I've uh, outlined here, as well as a number of others. Um, as you wrestle with hard parts of the Bible, uh, it's probably helpful to be able to engage with other Christians, maybe leaders or pastors in your life. Like this is a real wrestling process. We're not gonna get there right at the moment, but if we stick with it, if we, if we lean into that, so often, uh, there can be really great things that come with it. We're all in this together. I find so much comfort in that. So again, that hard work often produces great results, but let's be honest as well. Um, I know for myself, even after a ton of study, uh, utilizing the best tools or principles, there are still passages of the Bible. I've been following Jesus for almost 40 years. Still sections of the Bible, I, I just read, I'm like, I have no idea. <laughs> like, you know, like, I, I just don't know how to put this into context, into practice. And so just try to hold those with an open hand. It's going to happen to you as well. You know, so I encourage you, hold those before God with humility, with an open hand, and then try and give your primary focus on the parts of the Bible that you do understand that God is quickening to you, that, that God is leading you towards the Holy Spirit. It's like, okay, here's how you can put this into practice. We do both of those things at the same time. There's definitely plenty of things to keep us busy <laughs> in the pursuit of living those out. Okay, let's continue on by exploring several related observations from today's passage, okay? First thing, this is passage. There is movement from mere household rules to a mutual responsibility in relationships. Uh, again, in, in Paul's version of the household codes, he weaves in elements that would not have been common in that day. Rather than just mere rules to follow, he's pointing towards this reciprocity in relationships that was quite progressive. Consider this, in the first century, women and children were often not considered full members of society. Maybe even think about the gospel stories where the feeding of the 5,000, women and kids didn't get counted. It was just the men, you know? And men um, had all of the rights and power. Children were bound to obey their parents, not just in their early childhood years, but obedience was for life. A father could hold power of life or death over his children, choosing a spouse, choosing occupations, all those types of things. As it relates to marriage, the cultural norm in the first century was of men ruthlessly dominating their wives. So that's, that's the bedrock. I mean, that's the, the foundation of what Paul is speaking into. And with that in mind, we begin to see that when Paul tells husbands to sacrificially love their wives. Ephesians 5 goes into even more details about this. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and laid down his life for them. 
He instructs them to seek the well-being of their children instead of embittering them. These were really big departures from what was normal in their day because there was this mutual honor that was being pointed towards rather than just a one-sided relationship. There's this reciprocal nature to these connections that's meant for us as followers of Jesus. Okay, no, again, moment of honesty. Is this the complete picture, maybe, of um, all that we hope for in family relationships? You know, I don't think so. You know, I think there's still trajectory that's meant to go from the first century to God's uh, ultimate plans. But with humility, could we consider this? Could we consider that the people that first read, first heard these words, could have seen them as stretching, maybe even shocking, because it went against the grain of so much of what they had seen in their day-to-day culture? Could we be able to see that these could have been their next steps towards sending relationships more on Jesus? Similarly in Colossians, here's the second item. Uh, We see that there's an emphasis on our equal standing in Christ. Uh, Many people stumble over this passage, um, particularly because of its references to slavery. Um, We think about how this text and others uh, were used uh, in American history to give justification um, to what happened uh, right here in our country with slavery. Again, I don't think there's any excuse for that, um, and I think that was leveraged in a really, really hurtful, damaging, like tragic way. Let's look at two things to note as we wrestle with the context of Colossians 3. First of all, it's helpful to understand that in first century Roman culture, um, it was actually difficult to know who was a slave or an indentured servant, because this is the difference between that um, time period and what we would know in American history. In Roman culture, um, their system was not based on race or any outward marker um, of slavery. And so slaves may have been prisoners of war. Uh, They could have been sailors captured or sold by pirates. A number of people that were enslaved was because of financial debts. And so they had, uh, had to sell themselves or others into that to be able to try and handle some kind of financial hardships. Uh, But with that, slaves worked everywhere, in private households, uh, in mines, on farms. They worked in city governments, doing engineering projects like roads and buildings and aqueducts. Uh, They merged easily into uh, the wider population. But along with that, there also could be really harsh treatment as well. So there's these dual dynamics. It's not the same that maybe we would immediately think, but also it was not an easy road. And there was definitely injustice Uh, that was happening. Second, there's the approach that the early Christians took um, in light of this uh, reality of slavery. Uh, Within the church, slaves were welcomed and fully accepted as part of the body of Christ, just the exact same way as people that were free. In fact, in some cases, slaves were installed as elders and deacons in the church. And so they would... um, Uh, be in a spot where they're holding leadership positions over those who were slave masters. Consistently, Paul addressed slaves as people that had value. Consider what we find just a few verses earlier in Colossians chapter 3, where Paul writes this. He says, put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. Here, there is no Gentile or Jew Neither circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. 
or what Paul writes back in Galatians 3. He says, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Do you see where this is going? Do you see how Paul is pointing towards the reality of the new creation, of what God is doing in drawing every person that's in, in finding their life, their trust in Christ, there is equal standing for everyone at the foot of the cross. It doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, what your gender is, what your race is, what your cultural background is, every single one of us is in that equal status uh, before God. It's Christ in us, the hope of glory, that what aptly, ultimately matters. Okay, so that's where this is pointing. This is the, the movement, the emphasis of where this is going. That's super powerful. Again, another moment, honestly, that may not fully answer some of the objections or some of the difficulty that you might even have or others might have uh, to this text. And some of you might be thinking, why didn't Paul, Paul just call a spade a spade? Right? You know, why didn't he have a section like in Colossians? Like, okay, Colossians chapter 3.5. Slavery is evil. <laughs> Revolt. Like, that's a really good question. You know, through the years, many people have wrestled with this. You know, and Unfortunately, we don't have Paul here <laughs> to answer that for us. So it would be great answer, questions to ask him. So what do we do? We have to do the hard work as best as we can to try and understand what was the original purpose of this? What was he speaking into? And then to bridge that gap of how do we make sense of that for us today? Here's a few thoughts. People are way smarter than me as they've tried to wade through. Like what was Paul getting at uh, here First of all, this, that with Christians being a vast minority in the day, it seems like Paul was focusing the main thrust of his instruction in Colossians on how to live in Christ as best as possible within their given circumstances. So rather than speaking to, here's all of the things that need to change, he says, this is where you are, here's how to try to live that out in the midst of that. Similarly, he also seemed to write with an understanding that the economic and the social systems of their day may not change overnight. And instead of matching power with power, Paul seems to point to this idea that indirect effort can actually be a pathway for transformation. Indirect uh, effort can be a pathway for transformation. A little bit more about this. Recently, I had a chance to um, listen to Rich Nathans, the founding pastor of the Vineyard Church in Columbus, you know, big figure within our movement of churches, and uh, uh, he was teaching on this passage. And one of the illustrations that uh, Rich used as he was walking through the difficulty of this uh, was he used the game Jenga. You guys get some Jenga fans out there? You like playing Jenga? Okay. So, remember you've seen this, you probably played this. Okay, the whole idea with Jenga is that each player will take out a block, you know, from that and then put it on top. And so piece by piece, um, you're, you're doing that, you're placing them on the top until at some point the tower becomes too weak and it eventually collapses upon itself. Okay, that's the idea of Jenga, right? Okay, so the, the goal in Jenga is to keep the tower standing. The illustration that Rich Nathan was talking about was actually in the opposite direction and talking about how systems of injustice actually are toppled in a very similar way. 
that it's not just like often one big push of power that makes things fall, but it's a block by block, piece by piece, little bit by little bit, that destabilizes the systems that are just dysfunctional and unjust until it finally hits a tipping point where it eventually falls. Along those lines, uh, Rich explored the argument that Paul's writings and the corresponding movements that were happening in the first century within the church were actually these progressive expressions of subversion underneath the surface, indirect effort that were chipping away at things that were not God's best one step at a time. As I think about that, I also thought about um, uh, you know, some of the interactions that Jesus had, uh, you know, different people um, in uh, both Jesus' direct uh, group of followers and others, they were clamoring for Jesus to just take on the Romans. You know, like, Jesus, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom? Just go at, like, route out the Romans. This is what we're after. And yet Jesus took a completely different path. He exerted indirect power in surprising fashion, his death and his resurrection became these destabilizing, destabilizing forces that eventually turned the whole world on its head. Do you kind of get the idea how this works? Now, this may not work in every single situation. It's not like a universal principle, but this is one way that transformation can come. And it's a, it's a uh, surprising way that we may not initially look to um, I wish I had a whole lot more time to go into that in detail, but even if I did, um, maybe the best thing to do, uh, I think Richard Nathan spent about 10 minutes or so talking about this whole idea of like strategic subversion and how um, we can be able to, to have some ideas of facing and addressing systems of injustice and inequality even within our society. So you can look that up on his website. Um, it's a fantastic uh, message, well worth your time. Okay. Man, we've covered a lot, um, and there is so much more that we could get at. And what we've covered so far may still feel incomplete, but those are some attempts. Those are some uh, passes at trying to grasp the intentions of the author, the impact of these words to the original recipients. Okay, so as we talked about before, way back when, about 25 minutes ago, um, that was one step in this process of trying to figure out what do we do with a passage like this. The later step is then to do our best to bridge the gap to today, seeking to apply those scriptures to our lives right now. Okay, so I just wanna finish up with a few thoughts uh, for a few minutes along those lines. Okay, here's today's key application. Here is where we bridge the gap. Look at the totality of Colossians, and particularly what's right here in Colossians 3. This idea that life works best with Jesus at the center. Life works best with Jesus right at the center. Think back to the verse that comes immediately before the passage that we're looking at today. Colossians 3, 17 says this. Whatever you do, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all. Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Paul was challenging these early Christians to think about every single aspect of their lives from Jesus being their main reference point. Jesus is the focus. Jesus is at the center. And then we think about every other part of our lives 
in relationship to that. Then in today's passage, seven times, Paul points back to Jesus as their primary identity marker. Verse 18, as is fitting to the Lord. Verse 20, for this pleases the Lord. Verse 22, with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Verse 23, as working for the Lord. Verse 24, you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, and it is the Lord Christ that you are serving. Finally, in 4.1, you know that you also have a master in heaven. There's this pointing towards Jesus is the one that defines who we are and how we live. That is a timeless principle that applies no matter whether it's the first century or the 21st century. Here's how that can look. First of all, um, let's encourage ourselves. For our lives today, here's how we can put this into practice. Put Jesus at the center of your work and all of those relationships. I think if Paul wrote this letter today, he'd likely be writing to employers and employees. That's the context of the 21st century. You know, for you, whether you work full-time, whether you work part-time, you're retired, whether you're a student or you're a stay-at-home parent, however you spend your days, I think this section from Colossians 3 can apply directly to you and I today. Look again at verses 22 to 24. We read, work with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ that you are serving. So why don't you imagine, uh, those of you that are going to work tomorrow, imagine having this attitude in your mind, as you get in your car, whatever you do, you travel from where you live to your workplace. Maybe you log on to the computer, working remotely. Uh, imagine for those of you going back to school in a few weeks with this approach in mind. You know, even those of you that are retired, can you see how this can be, ha- have some really powerful tracks uh, to be able to run on? These few verses uh, could be ones that you could save on your phone. Maybe put up on the mirror to say, this is what this looks like. Whatever I do, I'm going to work at it with all my heart as working for the Lord. I'm not working for a paycheck. I'm not working for status. I'm not working for all these things. Even if what you do day to day has nothing directly to do uh, with anything spiritual, you are a spiritual person. You are a follower of Jesus. and You carry the presence of God with you everywhere you go. And so every part of work is holy, every little bit. And so you want to work at that with all your heart with everything that you are, knowing that you're not just working for your employer, you're ultimately honoring Jesus in how you work, how you go about that. So that's one angle. And then if you're leading others, there's another angle with this. You can apply chapter 4, verse 1 to your context. As Christians, we should not be domineering over those that we lead. You know, we remember that we also are followers. We are underneath the authority of the Lord. We're not the ultimate boss. And so we commit to treating others, treating those that we lead, with immense respect and with um, great equality. Okay, so put Jesus at the center of your work. Next, put Jesus at the center of your family, center of your relationships, your friendships. 
Again, one of the big things that I noticed here in the, the shift in Colossians 3 is this mutuality of relationship. He's calling for this reciprocity of one to another and this spot that there is mutual honor. Um, one of the examples that comes up I, when we're doing premarital counseling with couples, uh, we'll actually have them fill out a little survey, and they have this map in the survey that we use that just talks about the different ways that they approach marriage. You know, so was it like a traditional way, more of an egalitarian way? maybe a mix of that. And what I have found through the years, what's most important is just that the couple's on the same page. You know, there's a lot of different ways that we can go about life and we can go about even a, a relationship like marriage, but we need to do that in a way that is mutual, that is turned towards one another rather than one person trying to dominate or to usurp uh, the other you know, this whole idea of mutual honor is key in any relationship, in a marriage relationship. It's, it's, uh, it's key as we think about raising our kids, whether those kids are little or relating to our kids that are older. You might think about this idea of mutual honor as you think about uh, honoring your parents. I mean, that's in the Ten Commandments, right? <laughs> you know, how do we work that out? It doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to do absolutely everything that our parents want for us, but we can have an attitude of honor uh, towards them. And we can also just spread this out into any other kind of relationship. You know, in our friendships, even those people that we don't like. <laughs> what if we had this commitment, this imagination to thinking about every single person that we run into as someone that bears the image of God and is worthy of treating with honor because of our reverence to Christ. Uh, here's how the Apostle Paul talks about this in Ephesians 5, verse 21. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another. Yield. Honor one another. Why? Because you have a Lord, a master, a king, Jesus, and he is the one that helps us to know how to relate to everyone else. Again, imagine their possibilities of what could happen if we treated everyone in our lives with the honor that comes out of the deep reverence for Christ. Finish with this. Uh, put Jesus at the center of your relationship with God. Now, that sounds um, almost obvious, but you know, when we think about, you know, how do we think about um, what life and spirituality is like? It's not about our effort. It's not about a gospel of try harder. It's all about Jesus. I read this verse in, uh, in our time of communion. It says, in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness of life. That's been our big arc of what we've been talking about um, through our whole study in the book of Colossians. That Jesus is absolutely unique and he has a pathway to bring every single one of us into a fullness of life that we never would have been able to get to on our own. If we connect with him, if we look to him, if he is our center, if he is our reference point, if he is our identity, then that just opens up amazing possibilities in every single aspect of our life, in every single relationship in our lives. And so um, I'd love to pray for us along those lines. There's so much more we could talk about, but let's lean into uh, all that God may have for us individually. Would you go ahead and stand up? Ministry uh, team, uh, you guys can start to prepare. We'll have the worship team back up here. And uh, let's just lean into 
asking God, asking Jesus, inviting Jesus right back into the center. God, we just say, God, uh, it's a lot to chew on, a lot to um, digest this morning. Um, and, and God, we just ask for your uh, continued grace um, to be able to wrestle with passages like today, other parts of the Bible that can be challenging to us. Now we want to just yield on the front end to say, um, you're smarter than we are. <laughs> and um, we just ask you to help us. And God, we come to just what we were talking about here just a moment ago. Life works best when you're at the center. And so, for some of you, maybe that's a, a very first step for you where you've been doing life on your own. You've been doing it in your own power. You've been trying to figure this out on your own. But you could take a step today to say, Jesus, I'm gonna have you as my identity. You as my reference point. Somehow there's something about your death and your resurrection, these things that these folks at this church are talking about that actually can give some grounding and some direction for my life. And so would you show me what that looks like as I turn to you? God, for all of us, God, we want to just bring you right back to the center of every aspect of our life, every relationship. God, could that come through this filter of reverence for you, relationship with you. We just ask for your help in that. Holy Spirit, come. Thank you, Lord. If you're going to minister too much, you uh, begin to make your way up. Um, um, as we transition to, to praying for one another, um, I think the invitation for prayer today um, there's a lot of really practical and pretty straightforward things, you know? Um, so we're talking about bringing Jesus into the center of our work, um, Jesus in the center of family relationships, whether it's our marriage, or with our kids, um, any other of those kinds of relationships, inviting God into any and every kind of uh, situation, friendships, you know, other connections. You know, every one of us have these relationships. Every one of us have these connections. And so we just want to bring those honestly before the Lord. You know, maybe there's some real difficulties that you're facing in some of those places. You can bring those before God and just look to him uh, to be able to help. Uh, maybe things are going really well, and, but there's just like a next step for that. I had a, a sense that there was uh, just a number of people this morning that uh, maybe an invitation for prayer for you is just looking like for direction in what you're doing with your career. Maybe you're a young person and you're trying to figure out what are you going to do for the rest of your life. You know, or maybe you're a little uh, farther into uh, your, your work life and you're saying, God, is, is there some kind of a shift or do I need to think about this differently? Those could be some things. I um, also had the sense, um, uh, God just wanted to bless over parents, um, and particularly if you have felt the weight of um, the, the pressure of having to just be a perfect parent. Like, like you just up to here and thinking like, unless my kids turn out perfect, <laughs> um, like I'm just an awful, uh, awful parent. And so God wants to meet you in the middle of that. And so whatever it might be, um, they're going to go back into some worship, encourage you to just soak before the Lord in that, engage. Whatever is on your heart today, you can bring that before God. Let's pray for one another. Let's be in this together. Let's worship. Let's pray for each other. Thanks so much for being here today.